All right. Spring training has started for the Diamondbacks, and the two leading candidates for the fifth rotation spot looked good in their first audition this weekend. We had Tommy Henry going against the Rockies Friday with two scoreless innings. Same for Ryan Nelson. So we're going to talk about that competition, how how everything kind of sets up, and other spring training storylines on today's episode of Snakes on the Diamond. So welcome, everyone. And baseball is back. Joining me today is Wes Beyer and my boss at Inside Diamondbacks, Jack Summers. We're going to talk about starting with the uh, rotation battle between Tommy Henry and uh, Ryan Nelson. And then we'll get into the outfield as well as other other storylines everyone wants to know about the uh, TV deal. Obviously, there's a lot of things that need to be shown that one and any additional spring training storylines that might have been missed already. So... How are you guys doing today? I'm fantastic. Uh, it's good to have someone else on here besides me. Like, it's good to, you know, have you on here, Jack. Uh, kind of gets into like a just, you know, echo chamber between me, me and Michael sometimes. We tend to agree on each other a little too much. Well, yeah. I don't know if I'll be able to avoid that. Michael and uh, you and I all kind of agree on a lot of stuff. So, yeah. Um, you know, it may be a little yeah. perspective here or there, but thanks for the welcome. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, yeah, so obviously uh, ma- major storyline spring training, the fifth starting rotation spot, Tommy Henry struck out three and two scoreless innings allowed just a dribbler infield. Actually, it wasn't an infield single. Well, it was a slow roller that got up the middle. Nelson gave up two hits in his first inning, but ended up getting five strikeouts between the first uh, five strikeouts out of seven hitters. So it's like, how important do you think it is to have both guys get off to a very good start? And uh, Jack, you go first. Okay. Well, obviously, um, you know, they both look really good. Um, and, uh, you know, right now the team is in what Tori is referring to as a very challenging um, fifth starter competition. I, I think it's a difficult evaluation for them. And uh, as he alluded to, you know, there there's going to be a lot of tough conversations at some point. Um, so, you know, it, it's hard to say how it's all going to shake out, but certainly – Henry and Nelson did their parts by both having uh, very good starts, uh, albeit just a couple innings. Henry threw what I don't know, twenty-something pitches in this inning, and then he went down to the bullpen and threw another dozen to get up to thirty-five. And uh, Nelson got, I think, up to thirty-three. So, but they did a lot more than just get their work in. They they got their strikeouts. They they did some good things. Each of them, um, the pitches they threw. Uh, you know, and how they their command and control of the strike zone and and uh, the shape and movement. So uh, you know, a lot of a lot of positives. So I'm sure we'll dive into each pitcher's outing, but uh, overall, pretty cool. Yeah, I would say the big storyline, obviously, is uh, Tommy Henry being able to spot his fastball, while Nelson uh, being able to find something other than his fastball to throw for strikes and swinging swing and miss. I think in that regards, both pitchers achieved what they sought out to achieve in this week. And how important is that for both pitchers basically to be able to add a little bit more wrinkle to their repertoire? And I know uh, Wes jumping at the bit to answer. Why don't you go first? Yeah, I was, I was going to say uh, it was 34 pitches by Nelson today, 22 by Henry yesterday, which I did not realize that Henry was that efficient, which is uh, that's really like positive, positive start to the, you know, to this competition here. Um, having like actually having both of them really like compete for the spot is like 
we're in a little, a little bit different than last year where it, like they kind of no one really stood out from the pack uh the one guy who did was you know put in the bullpen or sent or no thought was sent down but the other you know the other one that stood out was put in the bullpen so it's a little bit different situation i mean our the rotation pretty much solidified at this point we already have no four of our starters um i think it's going to come down more to personal preference of you know what mike hazen wants to do here i would think it's going to go to henry just so we have another left-hander in the rotation but if they you know they both have really great springs like uh I mean, really, I think it's just comes down to preference. And I think that's what's going to happen. I, I think that um, the other factor that is in the back of my mind is that Henry profiles more like a starter. And he doesn't look like a guy that his stuff is going to jump up or play up in the bullpen. Whereas, yeah. you know, if. Nelson can throw the kind of slider he threw. And, you know, we saw in the first inning, he was throwing 96, 97. He was pumping it up there. Um, he went 3-0, I think, for the first hitter in the second inning. And so he kind of dialed it back a little bit. And his velocity dropped to 93, 94. But he had 95 when he needed it. Um, you know, and if he can throw that slider like like he did today, that fastball-slider combination with a high 90s, you know, mid to high 90s fastball, solid mid. Um, it makes him a little bit more of a, a, a short inning reliever in my mind, you know, a guy that could step in for an injured, um, setup guy or something like that. And all of a sudden, you know, you, he could excel in the eighth inning. Whereas I don't think Henry is really suited for that kind of role anyway. And just, you know, his ability to maybe get slightly deeper into games and induce soft contact might make him a little bit more, uh, of starter profile. Yeah, I agree with that, Jack. They're really, they both have very, I I mean, you put throwing Henry into the bullpen, like it doesn't really do much for him. Nelson, of course, you know, he has the luxury of leaning a little bit more on his velocity in the bullpen versus, you know, Henry not really having the luxury. Because if you look at, uh, you look at Henry, I mean, the main thing is just getting his fastball to the right spots. If he can do that while he's already your best option as a fifth starter, having three usable pitches because both his breaking balls were very good last year. Right. We saw the curveball in spring training. The one he threw to Amador was probably the best curveball he's thrown in his major league career so far. It's one of those pitches where you swing at it, you're not going to hit it. And if you don't swing at it, the umpire is going to call it. Uh, I kind of get the sense that Henry's going to be a little bit more aggressive this year and, uh, you know, go for the strikeout a little bit more. Um, and so if he does that, he's going to have games where, you know, he's, goes seven innings and, and looks pretty dominant, but he's also going to have games where, you know, he gets his doors blown off and he's gone by a third. Yeah. His starts against the Rockies. I think you look at that uh, last year, like the one at chase field where he threw seven scoreless innings with a career high seven strikeouts. Whereas in the uh, other start he had against Colorado he was cruising through four and then it kind of, it nearly came off the wheels in that sixth inning. But to his credit, they, he got enough outs in that inning and the bullpen took care of the rest in that one. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a traditionalist when it comes to peripherals and FIP versus ERA and, and, and all of that. And, you know, for me, the bottom line is, you know, his walks, strikeouts, and home runs did not support his ERA in his first yeah. And so he's got to, you know, increase his strikeouts and reduce his walks um, if he's going to be able to, 
pitched around a four ERA uh, with any kind of consistency. And, uh, you know, you just can't count on beating your, your fifth by a run, run and a half all the time. It just, over the long haul, it doesn't work. Yeah. Oh, I think Blake, I, I think Blake Snell is betting on that, uh, you know, beating his, his fifth and his, you know, peripheral stats uh, going forward. I, I think he wants the GM to take him up on that one. Yeah. Sorry, I yeah, can't remember that. There are 30 MLB teams that are taking Jack's side on this one. Well, just for Other, the, you know, his ERA for his career is 3-2, Blake Snell, and his career fifth is 3-4-4. So it's not like there's a mountain of difference. Yeah. There. Yeah. You know, now his his fifth last year, three, four, four, it matches his career, but his ERA was two point two five. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I, I I was going for the easy joke. Yeah. No, I, you guys, you, you guys know me. I'm always going to go for the easy joke, no matter like how dumb it is. Yeah. Well, you know, I was I, going for one myself. In reality, though, even though I didn't quite get the joke, but, you know, the the. The fact is, is that Tommy Henry needs to strike out at least yeah. one more guy per nine innings and he needs to walk one less guy per nine innings. You know, six and three or whatever it was isn't going to cut it. Yeah, I was going to say one more strikeout and one less walk per start and you'll get the right there. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things like actually is like going before this spring training is like seeing Nelson have like develop a new pitch really that's effective really changes my evaluation of him like you know as a starter versus a reliever because that having an actual like plus you know pitch like that to lead not just two pitch like having three solid three solid pitches i uh, i think he could develop into a lot more than just a fifth starter while henry's you know ceiling is is limited to probably a middle of rotation starter you know it was interesting today so talking to to uh ryan nelson Last year, he basically threw two two different sliders, or he threw like a slider and a sweeper. So, you know, what that's what he called it. You know, StackCast is calling it cutter. Um, uh, if you look at the pitch uh, classifications on Fangraphs, uh, they always called it a slider. But in his mind, he had two different sliders, a slower one and a faster one. Um, and he claimed that the numbers of the X slug on the slower pitch were worse and so what he was what he's been trying to do is focus eliminate that pitch and just go with a harder slider that's in the mid to upper yeah. eight. um and i was talking to uh, our friend jesse freeman and he said he looked it up and last year it was actually the faster slider that had the higher x slug hmm so I'm not really quite sure what's going on here, but the bottom line is, is, you know, I didn't get that. Whoops. Could you try again? No Siri. <laughs> Siri. I don't know what she's doing. I don't know how she came up there. No, thank you, Siri. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully you, you cut that out. Or you're going to be messing with a whole bunch of listeners. Uh, devices, <laughs> Michael. Only if you're listening. <laughs> so, so anyway, It'll be weird. Um, but I mean, you know, today, um, the two hits to the lefties he gave up. He, uh, you know, the sl the slider was at the bottom of the zone. He just didn't get them quite in enough, you know, and gave them a little bit right. too much middle. They were down to bottom. That was uh, Blackman and McMahon, both, uh, you know, hit uh, hit the ball pretty solid. I think 
Blackman hit a 106 mile an hour line drive. And I don't know how hard McMahon's was, but it was, it was 97 and it was 97 miles an hour. Than, but that's one of those balls. I think if the, if he had the infield playing at normal depth, that's an out. So, so, you know, and then uh, Zimmer is the other lefty and he got him to roll over on a four, three, you know, and then every other out was a strikeout. <laughs> so it's hard to complain. Yeah. Five I mean, uh, whips out of swings, right? 11 swings, five whips. On the on the slider in particular. I think I was all of them. I think, I think in total he got 11 swings. Nelson did. If I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. I think it was. No, it, it hasn't been eight. Three on the four seamer and then uh, five on the slider. Okay. You know, the one change I'd be through was the McMahon single. That was one of those where he, it was down, but maybe not a what it was a location mistake based on the horizontal location, not necessarily the height. Hmm. And it wasn't like McMahon clobbered or put a good swing on. It was just a well-placed ground ball. Uh, so situation. 17. That's still really good. I mean, 47% live with that all year long from him. Cool. All right. Well, I mean, you know, the bottom line is, is that, uh, it's their first outing each, they each threw two innings, um, and, uh, on to the next one, right. You know, it's got, it immediately becomes a little tougher. They have some split squad games and all that. Um, you know, you've got, uh, Ciccone and Walston are going to get the next two starts. And then after that, they're going to start bringing in, um, Gallon and Kelly and Eduardo Rodriguez. Um, so, you know, between, so some of these guys are going to have to come in out of the bullpen to get their innings, you know, as I say, with the way that Nelson and, uh, Henry performed their first start, I, do you believe it's now down to a two horse race? If there or ever, if it ever wasn't that situation to begin with, I, I don't think so. I'm just gonna say that right off my, this is so early, like literally nothing really matters to me. Like the, the next like two weeks. None of it really, I'm not going to form any opinions unless someone is so glaringly bad or so like obviously good, doesn't move the needle at all. It's the first week of spring training. Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, definitely a good I, point to take. I think you can say two things. I think that the team is definitely uh, has a depth chart and Tommy Henry's number one and Ryan Nelson's yeah. number two. And the gap between two and three is large in their mind. Yeah. That's how I would describe that. Yeah. I agree with that. But I think that was this that was the case before we even got into spring training. So like I said, like that right. Uh, Henry Henry's gonna have the advantage just, you know, already having more service time, being a lefty. Uh they're they they know what they know what they're gonna get with them. There's less development for him to to really be slotted into, you know, a rotation long term versus Nelson who's still developing as a starting pitcher. So I mean I think it's it's really more Henry's, you know, going into spring training is Henry's job to lose. Like we, we talked about, like, I think a week week or two ago, an episode or two yeah. ago. Yeah, two episodes ago. So 41. Yeah. Make sure to check that one out. Uh, I mean, the thing with Henry is it's like just locating his, just ha- uh, fine-tuning his third pitch because you give Henry the fastball, that's three pitches at three different speeds. So you got enough to work with there that you'll keep going. Whereas you look at Nelson, uh, last year he's a one-and-a-half pitch pitcher. I think if he has good, he had good feel for that slider, that's too. I think he has a decent change up. Maybe you hold on to him, but I think it's a case where 
There's nothing left for Nelson to prove in the minor leagues, so they could just roster him just so mm. that way they don't waste his bullets there. And there have been. So, um, I think, you know, uh, good problems to have, right? I mean, you know, yeah. you got two guys and you still have, you know, Sacconi and, and Walston to, to, as depth, uh, funny talking to uh, all the Reno guys have been here, you know, the, uh, communications, uh, VP and, uh, the guy that heads up, um, the, their, um, social media and, and a bunch of other. Uh, Reno folks are, have been up there and, you know, just talking, they were like, man, that Reno rotation is going to be full. You know, there's quite a log jam. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, it's pretty evident that D-backs at least have a, a large collection of triple A quality players, given that they've had a pretty good record over the last two years. Uh, they, by the way, the context for that discussion was uh, whether or not Yuman Lin would start in Reno or Amber. Oh yeah. And uh, you can make an argument for that. Yeah, for sure. But they were like, well, you know, the pecking order and all of that, he'll probably start in Amarillo just because Reno's so log jammed. Unless they are aggressive with, you know, converting a guy or two. Well, Lynn looked absolutely, his stuff looks filthy now. They've actually seen like a good angle of, of him pitching. I, uh, that, that Reno rotation is, is probably going to be one of the best in AAA this, this season, period. I mean, Reno will bring it back down to earth just because and it's in raw talent. It's going to be one of the best. Right. Yeah, at least the one thing with the Pacific Coast League is Reno is probably closer than normal for its league than Amarillo is in its own league. Yeah. So it's uh the frequent topic of discussion on this podcast yeah. of uh, this pitching on the moon. Is, is it a problem for player development? Stay tuned. I actually think it's a tougher problem for hitters than it is pitchers. Yeah. I'm... I, I see so. it's debatable, but uh, other big storylines, I think it's a good good point of move from here. All right. So from one log, so from one log jam to the next, let's transition into the outfield. So kind of the early storylines of spring, Jock Peterson is working hard with Dave McKay to try and get better defensively. Randall Gritchick's availability for opening day is questionable. I think that's uh, and also Alec Thomas is off to an impressive start this spring. Those are the three big storylines I think with this outfield and spring training that could determine how the opening day roster looks. So in the case of Gritchick, he's not going to get very many reps before the season starts because of uh, off-season ankle surgery. So do you think that's actually going to push Peterson to play more outfield if Gritchick has to open the year on the disabled list? Um, I think it really depends on what one of the things Tori was talking about, like is whether they uh, go to go to opening day with two infielders and one outfielder or vice versa. Right. I mean, that's, you know, decision that they have to make. And it really just depends on, on where they end up. It's hard to imagine they only go with one backup infielder. Can't imagine they'll do that. Yeah. Doesn't make sense. That would be odd. Doesn't make any sense. So if if Gritchick has to start the year on the injured list, um, you know, then what are your options, you know, beyond Peterson, right? I mean, it's either Jake McCarthy or Barossa at this point, right? Yep. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see where they go with that. Um, unfortunately for Jake, you know, it seems like he's the odd man out, right? Um, he, he really seems to be marginalized in all of this. 
Um, so, you know, I mean, you bring in Peterson, you bring in Gritchick, it's pretty obvious where, what their evaluation is with Jake, um, you know, and he's going to have to work really hard and, uh, you know, play really well on AAA and, and uh, play better than Barossa and, uh, you know, to get, get his shot. But I think the, the $64 question, yeah, I'm dating myself. Yes, I'm a... <laughs> Beat me to it, Jack. Uh, but, uh, you know, the big question is Alec Thomas, right? Because if Alec Thomas plays almost every day, if Alec Thomas hits lefties well enough to start 135, 40 games, then there just isn't that many starts. Yeah. Curtis starts 135, 40. Thomas starts 135, 40. Carroll starts 150. I mean, then what are we talking about? We're talking about, you know, 50, 60, 75 outfield starts for, for the bench. Yeah. For, and then how many of those are going to Peterson? How many of those are going to Gritchick? And obviously those guys are going to get starts at DH as well. Right. You get in the lineup. It's a, I mean, at that yeah. point, that's your, that's what you're going with. I, I mean, I, I still don't see Peterson getting more than a dozen starts in the outfield. I don't think that, I don't think we're going to start. Just, so we're clear, we're talking about Jock Peterson because there's also Jace Peterson, which is going to get very confusing this year if they're both rostered. I just wanted to point that out. I know who we're yeah. talking about, but people might. We're talking about Jock. I don't think Jock is going to be uh, getting a whole whole lot of outfield starts. It's either uh, something's gone wrong or uh, he's managed to significantly improve his defense to you know to to make Tory comfortable enough to play him out there. I mean, I hope that we're is not the case this year. Um, Alec Thomas, I mean, he's had, like you said, like the, the exit velocity and everything's there so far this spring. If he can break out offensively, then it's like really, it's a, it's a good problem to have either way. I mean, the, the thing is, is if you, if you take it to the next step, like how many games are you going to want to bench Alec Thomas against the lefty and then insert Jock Peterson against the lefty in the outfield to play defense? Yeah. Oh. You're not but- going to, I don't think, they're going to bench Thomas while there's uncertainty with Gritchick for one. No, I mean, essentially Peterson, yeah. a dozen games in left field spelling Lourdes. Yeah. I could see if a little bit more than that, depending on how they want to use the DH spot. Obviously Tori was uh, posturing a little bit in pregame. That's kind of thing. It's like use the DH to get Carroll off the field, get Walker off the field, and uh, Gurriel off the field without taking their bat out of the lineup. That's basically how it would go. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm I, just saying, on Jock Peterson, there's going to be another outfielder on the roster. Yeah, so doesn't for him. I, if whether it's McCarthy or Barosa or somebody, I mean. You know, they, they got to have somebody out there, right? Somebody else that can play outfield. And so they're not going to never play them. Yeah. Right. So Pat, what you're, if you've been Pat, what you were saying about uh, McCarthy earlier, he was also like offered in the trade for uh, Christian Mena, Mena as well. So it's his job is very much is very clear that the team has like zero faith in him right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's got to drive the ball. He doesn't, he's not driving the ball. His swings, uh, in, in, you know, in the game we saw yesterday didn't really look very encouraging. Yeah, yeah we saw better swings from Barossa yesterday on uh, the spring opener. 
Um, Alec Thomas, I mean, had a nice talk with him today. Um, I, I assume that uh, those, I don't know if those quotes are going to get into your article that you're writing for tomorrow morning. Um, no, I... But he talked about what he's trying to work on and the, the changes he's trying to make and how he went about it and who he went and worked with and during the off season. And, uh, you know, I mean, we've heard this in previous off seasons with him, but I just kind of, I, today's base hit against a left-handed pitcher, you know, he got that foot down. He was in balance. He was, his, he was moving forward and, you know, the, the pitch was inside and he inside outed it to the other, to the opposite yeah. field. And, uh, you know, last year that was a four, three, that same pitch, same guy. That was a four, three, almost every time last year. Yeah. And so, like that one swing gave me more encouragement than just about anything else I saw today. Yeah. And I think it's so he- also, it- He's ahead, visibly better. He's visibly better. That's really like that's by one point. It's like this looking at him in batting practice, looking at him uh, in, in today's game. You already beat me to, you know, that hit. Uh, like there's a visible difference in his swing. It's a lot less busy. He's getting his foot down a lot faster. I mean, I'm liking what I'm seeing. Uh, the only thing that's not ideal still is the launch angle, but I think it's, a, I think it's overplayed to some extent. Not really worried about that. I mean, you see if he's making solid contact, driving the ball, especially on pitches like that. Uh, I think that he's an everyday player. I was say, uh, go ahead, Mike. Sorry, I was gonna say the three balls that he hit today. I was gonna say two of them. Ha- it was uh, the launch angles were six degrees, six degrees, and negative thirteen. And the negative thirteen was on the ground out, but that was a situation where he had second, third, the infield was playing back. Ground out to second base is about um, the best thing you can do, but while making an out. Yeah, I, if Alec Thomas puts up less than a 50% ground ball rate in any full season in the major leagues, I'll eat my hat. Okay. But what you can't have is 58, 59. Yeah. 56 or 50. I think it was 50, 58 year one year two was 56 based on uh stat cast metrics. Let's see what Fangraphs has. Yeah. I mean, I know at certain points in time he was in the high fifties, but it may not have stayed there. Let's see, batted ball. So I'm on fan graphs. Crumble percentage. 2022, 58. 2023, 55.5. Yeah, so of course. Yeah. It's a number thing. How could Michael be wrong? It's never going to happen. Oh, and Michael's very good at remembering numbers. Like, I'm, I'm good at remembering other things, but not numbers like that. It always impresses me. Yeah. By the way, you want an example of a successful hitter with a ground ball rate in the low 50s? Yeah. David Peralta. Yeah. 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 I mean, if, if you get around 50, 51, 52, you can be very successful. It's very hard. There's, a, there are a few guys. Derek Jeter was always like in the mid high fifties. He was like, Derek Jeter is probably the most successful hitter with a high ground ball rate in the modern era. You know, like in the last 30 years. I was going to say Jeter was really, I, I think one of your underrated part is like Jeter's game is he didn't necessarily pull a lot of, I bet he didn't pull a lot of his ground balls. So now you got me looking up Derek Jeter's ground ball rate. I, I'm just looking at his uh, Thomas's minor league stats. I want to see what his like. They were up what there is, in like high fifties in his minor leagues. Yeah, no, I'm just saying in his best in his best uh, stop in the minor leagues. Yeah, no, he was anywhere from 
mid. I mean, if he can get like, I mean, the lowest he's had it is forty six point seven percent. So yeah, I, I think I'll join you in eating that hat if he uh, posts one for more than a. I think more than a season is really the, the bet there because I, you know, season to season that might be some noise enough where he could get it below below fifty in a really really good year, uh, but year to year I don't. I don't think he really profiles as a guy who's going to put the ball in the air more than he does on the ground. I was say, if Alec Thomas is under 50% ground ball rate, you're probably looking at an all-star level season. That high A stop with the 47. Yeah. 104 okay. play appearances. Yeah. Yeah. And then 50.4 in a short run with Reno that in 2021, that's 166 plate appearances. So if you wanted to compare. <laughs> It just confuses me about him is because he hits the ball so hard, like consistently. He's like, I mean, outside of parts last year where he really was making terrible contacts, at least in the minor league, like you the cover off the ball most of the time. So, uh, it's weird just how much he hits it on the ground. Yeah, exit velocity has never been an issue for Thomas career wise. He's always been able to get the fat part of the bat on the ball. Um, the problem is getting in the air. Yeah, but you know, look, the the bottom line is is um. If, if he doesn't pull off the ball and he takes a swing like he did today and, and goes the other way with it, because, I mean, the minute he comes to the plate, you know, when you're sitting there in a press box, it's like really obvious. Like you don't notice it watching on TV, but like you just see everybody you know, like the whole infield yeah. gifts over three steps, except for the third baseman, the shortstop, the second baseman and the, and the first baseman all move three steps that way. You know, and so that like today, it opens up the hole between third and short. And, and uh, you know, so if he's able to do that and, uh, you know, keep the defenses honest, you know, and, and it's funny, like when you look at the, the defensive alignment with Thomas, it's always infields shifted right, outfields shifted left, because when he elevates the ball, he hits, hits the ball hard opposite field a lot. You know, I mean, we've seen him go go down the opposite field line and hit the ball into the left center field gap plenty of times. When he elevates the ball, he, he can put it over there. So you actually see the outfield shifted around a little bit and the right fielder off the line, and you see the infielders pulled, you know, playing for pull. So if he's able to, you know, change up the scouting report um, and the defenses are going to have to play him a little bit more honestly, that'll help him. Yeah, because they'll say with Thomas, it's like he's got great bat speed and great hand-eye coordination. It just hasn't come together. It's just like the two things just don't merge into a good hit tool. So I'm going to I'm going to assume that one of uh, regardless of what Thomas does in spring training uh, with Richick on like probably on the DL, one of Jake McCarthy. Jorge Barosa is going to be making the roster as uh, a fourth outfielder. Um, I would assume it's Jake just because he's, you know, already the clock's already started on him. hasn't started on Barosa. Um, but what do you think it would take for, for Barosa to overtake uh, Jake and make the, make the roster? Well, if we're assuming Gritchick opens the year on IL, he just has to outperform McCarthy in spring training. Yeah. I think they're on equal footing. Yeah. I mean, if Gritchick's healthy, he's going to be on the roster and Jake's going to be on Barossa. And then you're just comparing Barossa and and, uh, 
and and Jake head to head, you know, and whoever yeah. the one that gets to come up when they need an outfielder. Um, you know, Tory. You know, for the record, Tory keeps saying that they think, even though he's not been cleared for full baseball activities, uh, the way Tory described it was he's not yet been handed off from the, you okay. know, department, the medical department to the baseball team. Um, I don't know how many more days for that. Uh, you know, if it's, I mean, today's only, you know, February 24th. They still have over a month, right? First yeah. Okay. You know, so it's plenty of time. Um, I mean, if he if he starts if he's cleared for baseball activities by March one, he's got twenty six days, twenty seven days. Okay. You know, now if he's not cleared for baseball activities until March fifth or March seventh, then it gets a little dicier. Okay. Yeah, because uh. You're looking at a six to eight week recovery timeline before he can really do anything on a baseball field. So I'm not exactly sure which day in January the surgery happened. So we don't have a clear timetable of it, but I'll probably take a look for it. But probably middle. I mean, you know, it's my guess. But he's probably he's probably at, at, at minimum five, five, six weeks at five to six weeks out from the surgery. Yeah, if it's January, we're at least four weeks out. We're three weeks out for sure. Man, he's ripped. He is absolutely ripped. That guy's like one solid mass of muscle. Seems like a nice guy. I just said hello to him today. Seems, seems like a really good guy. I, I've heard a lot of really good things about him. Um, so, you know, I'm looking forward to getting to know him and, and talk to him a little bit more. But Hopefully he... Watching some pitching for us. <laughs> hey, so um, you know when you when you think about the outfield, I mean the one the one thing that I I probably want to dig into a little bit more also is uh, what are they doing to improve their throwing? You know, I mean Gurriel's got a decent arm, but not great. It's good. I think Gurriel's got. Uh, with Guriel, the arm strength is there. It's just never accurate. Yeah. You know, Thomas is, is very mediocre with the arm, and, and, and it's Carol's biggest weak spot. So, yeah. you know, things I kind of want to dig into, you know, I, I heard that Corbin was, uh, you know, he's cognizant of how his arm rates, and, I mean, he's super smart, and nothing's going to get by him, you know, and he knows the strengths and weaknesses of his own game, and I'm sure he knows the... Uh, what the metrics say and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, he's no, nobody's fool. So I, I had heard that that was an area that he was looking to improve and work on his game. So when I get a chance to talk to him, I'll probably download a little bit and ask him like, you know, what kind of drills you're doing? Are you doing more long toss? What, what, you know, thing. on quicker release, you know, what is it that you're trying to do to improve your, your throwing game? Yeah, that's definitely going to be a storyline because the dime that's probably one the one weakness in Diamondbacks outfield is they either have weak or inaccurate throwing arms. Yep. Even though this outfield can pretty much get almost any fly ball that's in the ballpark. 
yeah i thankfully some of our are the young young studs coming up maybe one of them like drew jones will work out because he's got an absolute cannon Barosa. But that's that's a, that's a while off i think Barosa has a pretty strong throwing throwing arm yeah yeah we already know uh what the case with mccarthy is and mccarthy's closer to carol in terms of arm strength i think that's just kind of putting together kind of the outfield as a whole. Like I said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of upside in the Dimex outfield in the minor leagues. I think you also, I think, uh, I think K-Rob is the only outfielder that got tested today on any sort of throw, but he ended up bobbling it and it ended up being a play where the runner easily slid in. I think just like a small bobble. As we're talking, going to the, uh, the team's uh, arm page on StatCast, of course. Had a geek out. So overall, Lourdes ranks as the strongest arm strength on the team. I, would, I wouldn't have guessed. I wouldn't have guessed that at all. Yeah. I the problem is, I you. I got another one that's going to blow your mind. Guess who was second? Perdomo. You sir. Mm. You're never gonna get it. Right. Okay, I've seen it. Are, I'm not are we talking answer. about on the, on the whole team? Yeah, yes, like any on the whole team. I, I'm in uh, Moreno. No, Moreno's not even on this leaderboard. Yeah, so from last year, it's uh, you know minimum throws 100. The 13 guys qualified. I ha- I I don't have a clue. Paven Smith. Oh, or. A good, a good friend, Haven. That's that's. Uh, I should have guessed. I should have guessed Haven. That does seem too well, obvious. Smith, Smith was a pitcher coming out of high school, and then he had Tommy John, and then he decided to be a position player for the rest of his life. Jake ranked uh, three miles an hour, or you know, three three less than uh, Corbin. Yeah. So among the outfields, you had Lourdes eighty-eight seven, Haven eighty-eight two, Fletcher eighty-seven eight. Thomas 85.3, Carol 83.3, and Jake McCarthy 80.2. And oh, mm. so sadly, number 11, by the way, 78.2 was Nick Ahmed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the good news for Ahmed is, is 95% of the plays, that's not going to matter. Especially since the release plays up, this probably. I guess effectively adds a, a couple miles an hour to his throws in terms of timing compared to a normal release. But, uh, well, I think teams are looking at that though. That's why he doesn't have a job. No. Yeah. He's the range and the release and the glove. And, you know, I, I'm surprised he's not signed yet, but I mean, Tim Anderson just signed like two days ago. With yeah. The, uh, Marlins and teams still see him as an everyday shortstop, op- a, a potential everyday shortstop option, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm guessing that Ahmed's probably been offered a minor league deal. He didn't take it. Yeah, I get that. I mean, he's already, in the case of Ahmed, he's already accomplished so much in the big leagues that he, he could walk away on his own terms if he wanted to. Yeah. Anyway, um, so what's your next topic, Mike? Uh, do you want to talk about the uh, TV situation? Yeah, the TV situation is really easy. Um, 
you know, there's going to be cable and satellite option channel options almost almost surely. Um, they just haven't finalized it yet. So last year when they, um, you know, had to uh, when they had to sign up with these guys and create um, deals to, you know, have it carried on Cox and DirecTV and so forth. Um, you know, they, there was a one year deal or half year contract. So they have to write all new contracts. They got to renegotiate. And yeah. so that right now, and, you know, I'm almost sure they'll come up with something, but you know, they, those guys also have them over the barrel a little bit. Right. So, you know, they had to announce and go forward first with the streaming option because spring training was here and they had to start broadcasting. Yeah. Um, you know, and they, they were trying to work out some other deals that didn't come through. Um, and, uh, so they had to go ahead and, and, uh, like MLB was always their fallback position. And so MLB TV, you know, people can go to MLB.com and go to uh, D backs TV and, uh, sign up. And the thing I don't understand is for years, you know, people wanted the option to stream in market games, yeah. right? You know, they, oh, I don't want my full cable package. I, you know, I don't want Cox to direct anymore or whatever, you know. So now you can stream all the D-backs games for 15 bucks a month, basically, $99. And as people complain, oh, I'm not going to pay for, you know, it's like, okay, don't pay. You know, it, I, it's gonna if be I like, can afford it, most people should be able to afford it. I'm on fixed income, very low income. I and mean, it's like a matter of do I want to spend the money on it? Probably will, because, you know, I, I I think I do need kind of, I'm kind of obligated to watch D-backs game. So if it's not on cable and, you know, you actually answered my question is it should be worked out pretty soon, then I, I'll, I'll spur for it. So I, it's a pretty damn good deal, honestly. And with no blackouts, uh, I don't really see a reason to complain. Yeah, I think the people that are already paying for Cox or DirecTV are probably a little freaked out because they don't yeah. realize the way it was announced, they don't realize that they'll have an option. There'll be a channel. There'll be a channel on Cox. There'll be, you know, channels on DirecTV. They just haven't finalized the deal yet. Figure mid-March. Yeah, I was going to say, it's worst case scenario, take, there'll be... Take time. It'll be, it'll be just like, worst case scenario, it'll be, the same, it'll be the same as last year is what I think it will be. Yeah. Um, you know, it, for me personally, because uh, I don't have Cox to direct, I, I stream, so I just, you know, just buy the MLB package. I'll buy the full package so I can watch other games too. Yeah. Uh, so I, for me, it's 199 and it gives me, you know, the full, uh, all 30 teams whenever I want. Yeah. My, my parents nice deal. already favorite cable, so it's, I'm waiting to see if it shows up on there. If it doesn't, I'll just get MLB TV. Although I'm kind of torn between that and the minor league TV package, just because I sometimes I, I enjoy minor league baseball more than major league baseball. I'll be honest. Uh, but uh, I mean, I'm not worried about it. Outside what I assumed was that it just takes time for them to work out the deals with each of the, the service providers and they should have something worked out before opening day. Yeah. For me personally, the minor league package, the reason I don't go with it is because the camera angles and, you know, the camera work yeah. is very good sometimes and so i i just you know it's to me that value isn't there because of that but 
you know, and the, we, we depend on the, I, uh, I'm a, I'm a weirdo, you know, I am. So like that for me, just to be like watching minor league, I don't know. It's just the, it's, it's the, just the oddity of being able to access this like random team in the middle of nowhere in America. I think it's just, it's just a wonderful experience. Even if you're just watching it, you know, through the internet. Yeah. That's cool. But say, uh, if anybody's watching this and stressing out over, you know, what what's going to happen with their TV package, don't worry about it. Don't stress. It's going to be fine. You're going to have options. All right. So I'm trying to think. Anything and else? What about uh, that, that, that may have the been big, the big elephant in the room uh, that really shouldn't even be a thing, which has been like, oh, the, the D-backs could relocate from the leave arizona and blah 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 i just that's just such a product of uh clickbait media and people taking literally two sentences i actually went through i think jim, jim mcclennan over at az snake pit i uh, did a transcription of it and michael posted the whole press conference so if you, you did either one it's two sentences taken out of context at the very end of it and if you read if you ignore everything else Yes, the Diamondbacks might leave Arizona, but if you read it in context and read between the lines, very clearly like they're just focused on getting Chase Field up to code and being a modern, uh, you know, MLB stadium experience. If they leave, if they leave Chase, it'll probably be just be a different part of the valley. That's how I took that. Also, the lease runs through the 2027 season, so we're almost at the point where something has to happen soon. And they were kind of hoping to be at that point a year ago. Um, I have a slightly different take, yeah. Wes. Um, this should be good. I, I thought that um, some of the backlash, especially against uh, Jesse Friedman, yeah, was totally uncalled for. And oh, I agree. Um, and totally not fully understanding the situation. Um, it was indeed a threat by Ken. It was not yeah. an act that he phrased it like that. Um, every single member of the media that was sitting there had the exact same reaction. Um, just because they tried to walk back their statements yeah. doesn't mean that he didn't make that statement. Yeah, no, I, I, okay. I, I Michael pointed out your, your, uh, your comparison of like you're threatening to leave your wife and be like, oh, I could go marry, I could go marry so many people. And like, yeah, it was a threat. You're absolutely right. And uh, the treatment threat, but because they didn't want it to be, but because they were ineffectual. Yeah. The difference here. All right. It was an attempt at a threat and an attempt to exert leverage. It absolutely yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, but it just isn't a very credible one. Because where are they going to go? So the second yeah. part, um, there is zero chance that they're going anywhere else in the Valley because nobody's going to build them a stadium. There's no funding. They're not going to tribal land. The tribes aren't going to help them build a stadium. The tribes aren't going to seed, you know, a massive MLB stadium to them um, and, uh, you know, surrounding stadium district because it's different yeah. river fields. Um, you know, the D-backs would want far, far more control and higher percentage of the profits than they require at Salt River. Um, and 
it's not going to happen. And Ken even said that. He, he very yeah. point blank said, it's not economically viable to build a stadium, a climate controlled stadium. It's, you're talking $1.2 billion. The demolition fee on Chase Field is three, 400 million. Yeah. So what happened here was, if you go back to 2017, 2018, the D-backs were very confident that they were gonna be able to get a stadium built. Okay, and yeah. what they did was they negotiated a deal with Maricopa County where they would be responsible for essentially all of the maintenance, all of the upkeep and all of the renovation other than a few items that the county would be responsible for. Um, and the D-backs took that deal because they never thought they were gonna have to do it. They didn't think yeah. they were gonna do those renovations. Every That's why all this maintenance has been deferred because they thought they were gonna build a stadium. And guess what? They're not building a stadium. It's not so gonna happen, yeah. And they got, they, they got a $500 million price tag to renovate this stadium, half of which is for infrastructure and half of which is for bells and whistles and suites and upgrades to a new scoreboard and whatever else they need to do. Um, and so they're looking for public-private funding, and they're basing their demand on like, hey, look what they did in Baltimore, look what they did in Cleveland, yeah. right? Look what they did in Milwaukee. But the fact is, is that those organizations have a much better relationship with their local governments. Here yeah. in Arizona, actually, the the county is amenable to trying to work something out, but we have a democratically controlled city government and a democratically controlled state government. Yeah. We ironically have zero interest in putting forth ballot measures to the voting public uh, to yeah. bring in public money to support this venture. And so that's when they talked about their frustration and disappointment. They're talking about the state, yeah. city, not the, the county. Um, so, you know, they're, they're very much, they said, I asked specifically, I said, Derek, are you guys at an impasse? And he said, no, 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 we're not at an impasse. Um, you know, they're very engaged, you know, but then if you turn around and you ask Maricopa County, they'll tell you, well, they actually haven't had formal talks yet. So where it's at is this. Yes, 90% chance they're going to come up with some kind of deal at some point. It's probably going to be a lot less uh, public participation than they're yeah. looking for. Um, but if they don't make a deal on the renovation, then what could happen is, A, they do relocate to another state if somebody in another city is willing to um, build a stadium for them, or B, Kendrick sells. Yeah. There's zero chance that they're going to build a stadium in another part of the state. That's not going to happen. Well, I mean, like, the, really, like, just looking at the situation, um, that the most, uh, the, mo the economics are like they need to redevelop the stadium. The biggest, the most expensive item on the entire list is the the roof, from what I understand. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't see the I don't see the will from them to be moving to like. I mean, we've already seen with Oakland and what's happening there with like getting public financing. It's it's a non it's it's non starter for a conversation. Like they're having it's a real. Uh, I'm I'm just gonna say it outright. It's a, it's a shit show. 
what they're like the whole the whole Oakland situation is a shit show and it's like if that's the situation on relocation uh and not just specific to Vegas then I don't I don't see them I just see them going out of business if that's the case you're talking about the A's no the D-backs I'm saying if that's a situation where they don't get you know Chase becomes uh unplayable there's no alternatives for them to play at no I mean I don't. I mean, I I can see like you know like the the Salt Lake is trying to get a team. You have uh, them kind of lobbying with you know getting the the A's for a season or two. I don't know what the situation with that, but I mean, you know, there's a, there's a number of teams that you know would would take a franchise. But like once again, you reach into the the question of is like is the funding even there for them to get a you know a modern MLB stadium built? And probably not. Yeah. Well, I, I find it really hard to believe that MLB would allow, um, you know, Arizona and Phoenix to go without a major league. Yeah, it just doesn't seem likely. Like I said, you know, either they make a deal on the renovation or Kendrick sells. Yeah. And if he sells, hopefully it's to somebody, you know, that has the pockets to handle it. Yeah, I've been seeing... I've been seeing some jokes on social media about Matt Ishbia buying the D-backs. It's a... Never say never. Yeah. I'll 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 uh, think about that when when we cross that bridge. Right now, it's yeah. just uh, you know I I think I chase I hadn't been chasing for like over ten years, and I I mean it definitely like it needs work. Like the fact that you cannot close the roof with people in the ballpark is a real problem when we have like monsoonal, you know, thunderstorms that, you know, you have torrential downpours very quickly. Like if you have, you have to make the choice of having the roof open or closed. Um, it's just like that complicates the situation. But I mean, other than that, it's not, it's not that bad of a ballpark, especially with so the roof also, open. There's a also, lot of structure issues there. There really is. The, um, the cement in the building is decrepit in many, many places they have a lot of uh plumbing and water leak issues they have a lot of electrical issues like i said i mean the infrastructure portion of the renovation is a is a quarter billion dollars okay so it's more it's more than the roof it's it's like large infrastructure things are yeah quarter billion dollars that's it'll be interesting to see what happens i think i think they'll probably work something out and have to pick up the majority of the funding themselves then uh, having to lean on the county, the city, state, just, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I, I'm, I'm involved in the Arizona Democratic Party, and there is just not at all the, the interest in doing that. You know, I mean, they could put a ballot measure uh, forward, and it probably wouldn't pass. Yeah, I, I mean, look at the- they're like, well, let's put a ballot measure to tax, like, you know, rental cars and hotels. Well, the rental car industry and the hotel industry might have something to say about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the D-backs are pretty adamant about not going to the, uh, what was it, entertainment tax or something like that that passed two years ago. Yeah, so there's, I mean, they can get like, I think it's 9% or whatever, you know, um, uh, and basically, well, that's that that tax is on, you know, their own sales, you know, uh, revenues from uh, parking and uh, the concessions and, and so forth. Uh, so, you know, number one, they keep saying, well, we don't want to tax our own fans. But I think number two, that's just not enough money. No time. Yeah. I mean, the other thing too is, you know, so there's a reserve fund, but that only has got, um, you know, w- with the county, that's only got $12 million in it. 
<laughs> it's like, you know, that's it's not going not gonna to do a whole lot. Dropping no. Yeah. And they've already had to work on the sound and the lights this off season as well. Yeah. Well, the lights they had to do, um, they were pushed into that by MLB because the lights are no longer up to standard. Um, you know, they, so that's why the lights and the sound system became a priority over the roof. Yeah. yeah. I was, when I was covering games, I was constantly complaining about how messed up the sound was. And then obviously I was also at the game where they had to stop the game because the, the lights, uh, one too many lights went out during the game. It was against Cleveland. It was the Father's Day game against Cleveland, if I recall correctly. By the the way, sound system was my biggest complaint, actually, when I was there. It sounded awful. And I'm like, I'm an audiophile. I've always been in a really good sound system and speakers. And it is like by far the worst sounding public announcement system and sound system that I've ever heard, yeah. at least what last season. Yeah, it's the worst in baseball. You know, it's funny, during the postseason, we had all these national writers in the press box, and to a man, they were all complaining about it. Yeah. It yeah. was an inside. It, the sound was an inside joke between me and Jesse, where it's like, eh, they should put the inside sound preset on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's good they fixed that, because it definitely was bad and needed to be fixed. Yeah, yeah because... Sound will bounce off the walls in the ballpark, especially when the roof is closed. For sure. All right. Well, I've got dishes waiting for me. <laughs> All right. Yep. So we're going to wrap it up here real quick. Uh, like I said, we got a little less than five weeks before opening day. We're going to see how the uh, rotation, the outfields, and the TV deal sets up. Uh, we'll let you know when that comes across. Anyway, if you enjoyed the content, make sure to hit that like button, subscribe to the Snakes on the Diamond podcast, and leave a five-star review if you're listening in on your favorite podcasting platform. So once again, uh, for Jack Summers and Wes Bear, I'm Mike McDermott, and we like and thanks everyone. Uh, we'd like to thank everyone for being here. See y'all. <laughs>